Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church Podcast. We're happy that you would join us for today's teaching. As a church, we're passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus, no matter who they are or where they are from. If you have any questions about Jesus, the church, or the teaching you're hearing today, please don't hesitate to contact us online at ericksoncovenant.ca. And now, let's listen to this week's teaching. What do you do when you're waiting for something big to happen? Let me tell you a little story. I didn't ask permission from Tennille for this. But I want to tell you about a story when we were waiting for something to happen. A long time ago, almost 19 years ago. <laughs> and we couldn't have kids for a number of years. A lot of people don't know that because now they look at us and they look at Tennille and they think she's 15. And they wonder how in the world she has a 19-year-old. But it's true. It's quite a number of years. We couldn't have kids. And we waited and we prayed and we waited and we tried a lot of different things, but no kids. Now, obviously, by the grace of God and some other interventions, Ethan came along. And during that period of time, when she was pregnant, we started getting ready. We knew he was coming. And we started getting ready. Now, it was interspersed with a whole lot of puking, but Tennille started to get ready for him to come. Started to gather clothes and puke, and then gather some clothes, and then throw up some more. And then, um, and then we got the crib, and you know, and we got the room, and you know, all the preparation. And then, but we're waiting, right? We're waiting because you can't really force these things. You don't want to, and so you're waiting, and it's coming, and it's coming, and you're waiting. And you're waiting. But you're also getting ready while you're waiting, right? You're preparing, you're preparing, you're preparing your mindset, you're reading the books, you're, you're going to be an awesome parent because something big is going to happen and you're waiting for it to come. Well, what do you do when you're waiting for something big to happen? Like, how do you prepare? Think, just think about it. What do you do to get yourself ready for something big? Maybe it's a job promotion or a job change or a move somewhere. Uh, maybe maybe you're getting ready for guests to arrive or or an influx of, you know, relatives you've barely met who are going to stay in your house for three weeks. You know, how do you get ready for that sort of thing? Uh, how, how do you get ready to um, retire? Even to go on holidays. How do you prepare for something when you have to wait for it to come? Well, waiting can be really hard and waiting is where we find these first followers of Jesus in the few days after Jesus left them, but before the Holy Spirit came. They're waiting. Now, we are just fresh into a new message series um, in the book of Acts, which is the fifth book in the Bible, and it's a chronicle of the early days of the church. And this uh, story of Acts is going to cover most of our teaching over the next year. So I'd like to do a little quick review from last week. Those of you who are here, it's a refresher. Those of you who missed it, hey, there you go. Don't have to go back and listen to last week's message. Actually, you should, but, you know, this is the recap. So the book of Acts is volume two in a two-volume set. Gospel of Luke is like volume one. And even though, confusingly, the book of John sits in between them, 
These really go together. And, and uh, the Gospel of Luke spans all that Jesus began to do and teach right up to the time that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. The book of Acts, uh, Luke, in the book of Acts, Luke just backs up slightly to kind of overlap a touch, include Jesus' final words, and then it goes on to tell the story of the expansion of the early church, of the, the good news about Jesus. And just as Luke intends us to hear his first volume as all that Jesus began to do and teach, he really intends us to hear the story of Acts as Jesus continuing to do and teach, but now through the newly empowered, spirit-empowered church. And in my introduction last week, I shared two main ways of reading Acts. The first one is geographical. It's quite simple. They're both based on Acts 1.8. But geographically, Jesus promises that his followers, when they receive the Holy Spirit, they'll receive power. And they'll become his witnesses, first in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, the surrounding area, and then to the ends of the world. And actually, the book of Acts rolls out just like that. So you can read it. Geographically, it's quite helpful. See the good news spreading outwards. But more profoundly, we can engage the book of Acts through the lens of promise and fulfillment. In Acts 1, where we were last week and we are again this week, Jesus makes a promise that His Holy Spirit will be His witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes on them. And then in Acts chapter 2, and in every other story that follows, we actually see that promise Jesus made in Acts chapter 1, we see it being fulfilled over and over again in the early church, in these followers. So we see the promise, and then we see the fulfillment. And here's the thing, the book of Acts, in that sense, the story of Acts is continuing to be written today. The Holy Spirit is still fulfilling that original promise that Jesus gave that we would be his witnesses. And so, as we're listening to this story this year as a church, there are two primary questions that we're going to keep coming back to. They're going to orient us in how we hear and then respond to the story of Acts. Uh, two questions are this. How was the Holy Spirit fulfilling Jesus' promise of witness then, like through these disciples in this story? So you're reading along, stumbling along, Acts chapter 11 or Acts chapter 17 or Acts chapter 23 or whatever, you're going to ask, How is the Holy Spirit fulfilling the promise Jesus gave right here, right now in this story? But then we want to always ask that second question, which is, how is the Holy Spirit fulfilling Jesus' promise of witness through us now? And we raise our eyes and we look around and we examine our lives and we we try to notice, how is the Holy Spirit continuing to do this in, in us? These two questions will drive us. So, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus gave a, prom- gave a promise, but he also gave a command. He told his followers to wait, and so they waited as he tied his shoes. <laughs> but how did they wait? They didn't rush out in the street and try to start convincing people Jesus was the Messiah. They didn't do that. But they didn't sit on their hands either. They actively waited for the Jesus promise to be fulfilled. They got themselves ready. How did they do that? And what does that mean for us? Those are the questions we're asking today. Listen in, and I'll read Acts chapter 1. Now, I'm reading it from a mammoth Bible today. This is the Bible that they gave me at my ordination in June. I realized my smaller Bible was at home. So, I'm reading from the Word of God, and it's big today. (laughs) It's actually, okay, too much information, but it's the NIV side-by-side with the message, which is pretty cool, but actually 
kind of makes it weird reading through it because you always read over on the wrong stuff. So bear with me. Here we are. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city, about a kilometer. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language, Akeldama, which means field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the apostolic ministry, which Judas has left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. So Jesus made a promise, told them to wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and wait they did. But do you see what they did while they waited? They leaned into the waiting. It's like as a community, they stood on their tiptoes, getting ready and getting set for Jesus' promise to be filled, to be fulfilled. 
first, they got ready for the Spirit to come through worship and prayer. Constant worship and prayer. You know, back at the end of Luke's Gospel, if you read how Luke ends it, he talks about how the disciples, after witnessing Jesus' ascension, they worshipped Jesus, and then they stayed constantly in the temple praising God. That's actually the literally the last verse, the last sentence in the Gospel of Luke, that they stayed constantly in the temple praising God. And then here in Acts, we find the disciples also joining together constantly for prayer on the second floor of somebody's house. So they got ready for the Spirit to come through prayer and worship, through constant gathering together to pray and to worship, gathering at the temple, gathering at home. What we receive is a picture of a praying, worshiping community. That getting ready for the Spirit to come meant getting ready spiritually. And this doesn't seem to be something that they were having to, you know, order people to do or cajole people, phone people, get after people. Come on, show up. Don't you know the Spirit's coming? That didn't seem to be the case. Their deep anticipation of what Jesus was going to do just bubbled over. Their hearts were so taken with the grace and the love of God who raised Jesus, their Messiah, from the dead, installed Him as their King at His right hand, and is now going to send to us His Holy Spirit? They couldn't help themselves. They prayed to Jesus together, constantly. They worshipped together. They praised God together, all as a way of getting ready for this promise to be fulfilled. And it's upon this gathered, prayerful, worshipping community that the Holy Spirit comes. This is, this is the community upon which the Holy Spirit falls next week. <laughs> you know, Acts chapter 2. Gathering together for prayer, as well as for teaching and for, you know, Eating, encouragement, and worship is the primary way that the early church not only got ready for the Spirit, but after the Spirit came upon them, it was a primary way they continued to be filled with the Spirit, continued to walk and learn about following Jesus, continued to grow as disciples. And we see this gathering pattern continue all through the story of Acts. We also see it continue all through the history of the church. Gathering as a community to worship Jesus, to pray, to anticipate, to receive, to learn and grow. This has been true for the church of Jesus Christ before the Spirit even came. And this is why we gather. This is why we are here. We place such priority on our time together as a church because it matters. It's why our worship teams pray and prepare to lead us in praise. It's not about, uh, it's not about just, you know, having a performance. It's about gathering together as a church, lifting up with one voice the praise to Jesus and being amazed at who He is and what He's done and what He has called us to be. It's why we speak prayers and receive communion and it's why doing these kinds of things are central to our life together. It's why a bunch of guys wandered around in the rain yesterday on top of the roof. Because gathering in this building helps us gather in worship and prayer. And we want to continue to do that, to steward what God has given us so that we can gather effectively. It's why we serve each other when we gather. It's why we pour a coffee or care for a baby or reach out a hand to a stranger and welcome them in. It's it's why we serve on teams. We, We actually want our gatherings to be significant, meaningful, not only for those who follow Jesus, but for those who are maybe not yet following Jesus. And that may be you here today. You may be just exploring faith and 
are, are, are checking things out. And we want your experience to be the kind of experience that allows you to hear and receive. Gathering is so significant. It's one of the reasons why I work hard every week, best I can, to bring solid teaching from the Scripture. Because we know that gathering in here, as it were, as a church, said that before, right? We don't gather at the church, we gather as the church. It's why gathering in here as a church is so significant and critical to what we do out there as a church when we scatter throughout the week or the months. But there's a challenge in this story for us too. Because the truth is, I'm going to be straight with you. I think we could really grow in our prayer life as the Erickson Covenant Church. You could characterize the Erickson Covenant Church as a lot of things. But a praying church? Praise together as a church? I don't think anybody would characterize us that way. Now, I don't see that as any kind of guilt trip or big heavy. You know I'm not into that. I just don't think it works. And I also bear responsibility for this as your pastor. And believe me when I say this, I don't believe that we'll increase our prayer quotient as a church by sheer force of will or, you know, wagging our fingers. No, no, that's not how it happens. That's not how it works. But I do believe when we look at the example of our early brothers and sisters, as well as other Christians throughout the centuries, throughout history, that a more active and vibrant prayer life could be true of us. Is that a fair assumption? Is that a fair assessment to make? And so, I wonder, friends, as we're reading this, as we're hearing this, how the Holy Spirit might be calling us as a church to a more prayerful life together. This is the question I'm asking. I wonder what that would look like for us. And maybe we could just simply ask the Holy Spirit to call us as a community more deeply into prayer, more deeply into worship. I wonder if you would even join with me in that, in praying that as the gathered community, I don't just mean here on Sundays, I I mean as we gather in smaller groups or in our small groups or even where two or three of us are together talking, that that we would become more prayerful as a community. I wonder if you would join me in praying for that to be true of us. Now, as a beginning, simple invitation, but I also think a very concrete place to start, there are a few of us who meet right over here, 9.30 Sunday mornings, and we pray. We pray for the gathering that morning, but we pray for the whole church. We pray for the valley. We pray for the world. And so I'm just going to offer a simple, absolutely no guilt pressure invitation, but, a, but you know, a real one. Why don't you come early and join us for prayer? It's a nice, easy, simple way to start as we ask the Holy Spirit to grow in us a more prayerful, a more worshipful life. Not as some sort of burdensome duty, but something that comes from a place of joy, all that we have received. Well, back to these early Christians. So they got ready for the Spirit to come through prayer and through worship. But secondly, they got set for their witness by addressing their credibility issues. Now, that may not be what you thought. when you. This is kind of weird, right? What happens there at the end of Acts, you're like, some strange quotes from the Bible, and they cast lots for these guys. And like, how does that fit into the story? They're getting set by addressing their credibility issues. You see, as they were waiting, they turned to the Scriptures in order to make sense of something very raw and very personal to them, and that was the shocking betrayal and defection of Judas. 
I mean, we've read this story a long time. Judas is always at the end of the list, right? He's always at the end of the disciples' list, and it always says, who betrayed him? So when we're reading the early Gospels, we know from the get-go who the bad guy is, right? But they didn't know that. Judas was one of them. Judas was their friend. Judas was a companion in ministry. They remember the time that Judas laid hands on someone and they were healed. They remember the time that Judas preached about the kingdom of God and people's eyes were turned and they came and followed Jesus. They remember that, right? And they could not believe what had happened to them. And as they searched the scriptures, they started to process the grief and the confusion of his betrayal. But they also needed to address the fact that they were now one man down. See, Jesus had chosen 12 disciples. And their number, that number wasn't a random choice. You know, as we can see through the gospel accounts, Jesus chose 12 men to show people what he was doing, that, that God was doing something in him, that as the Messiah, he was summing up what Israel had been intended for and intended to do, and that he was forming around himself this new community that looked an awful lot like the old one, that these 12 disciples in some way mirror the 12 patriarchs, that Jesus was doing something significant. No wonder the religious authorities were so upset with him, right? Like, who dare you? How dare you? do? But there was 12. And now they were 12 no more. Now there was only 11 of them. And 11 ain't right. You know, 11 is lame. Just think about it. Jesus said the Holy Spirit's going to come and make us His witnesses, and we're going to go out there and bear witness to Jesus with 11 of us? I mean, they'll laugh us out of the park. They'll say, really? You couldn't find one more guy to back up your crazy resurrection story? Get out of here. That's what they'd face. It was a massive hit to their credibility. They knew it. They needed to deal with it. They needed to deal with their lack of credibility because it would harm their witness. And so they decided to address that gap while they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come and make them Jesus' witnesses. Now, just before he left, Jesus, in, this is Gospel of Luke, Jesus opened up their minds so they would understand the scriptures, particularly as related to him and the Holy Spirit that was coming. But through it, they also found support for what happened to Judas and what they should do about it. Peter stands up, reads these two little snippets from these two psalms, first to explain that what happened was part of the plan, but secondly to say, we've got to replace this guy. Now, for these early disciples who didn't have the Holy Spirit yet, it was essential that they knew they were moving forward based on God's Word. So based on that, they, they put forward two names, two men, who would be witnesses because they'd been with Jesus from His baptism right through to His ascension. They were witnesses together of the resurrection. And can I just say, it kind of reminds you, right, that there wasn't just the 12 guys hanging around. Like, there was the named 12, and that's important and very symbolic and huge. But there was other guys. The fact that they could forward two names of two other men who had been there from day one and had been witness to everything, it's kind of surprising. Along with women who had been part of it all and the family who had been part of all we discovered, they're part of the community too. But the fact that they could just forward two names like that is just a reminder that it wasn't like there were just a few people around who saw this. There was a lot. And it was on this larger group, 120 we find out, it's on them that the Spirit falls. So, to fill up their number to 12, they followed the established practice of casting lots. Again, this was before the Holy Spirit came. We never see that practice again after the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of his people. But the point of the lots, of casting lots, is really important because it's actually saying 
Jesus, you chose the first 12. Didn't do that great of a job, finally. But no, 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 one of them was, yeah. But you need to now choose the other guy, too. You chose the first 12. You've got to fill the vacant position. Luke wants us to know that Matthias wasn't elected by the other 11. It's not election. In the sense of, like, people electing. Jesus, you choose him. And that's how the lots, are, that's how we're meant to hear this. That Matthias was chosen by Jesus. So, how did they actively wait? They dealt with a credibility gap that would have harmed their witness. What about us? Now, as I mulled and prayed over this this week, I realized that we as a community called to be witnesses need to also be willing to address credibility issues in us as a community. Now, of course, we need to address credibility issues that exist in us individually. Hypocrisy, struggle, all that. But that's actually not what I'm talking about today. I'm now talking about us as the gathered community, as the church, which of course finds expression individually as you're out there. No kidding. But but I'm now talking about more at a little bit of a higher level of how we are represented as a church, our witness as a church. So let me ask you this. What makes our witness to Jesus incredible? Like as in not credible, unbelievable to the world out there. It's a big, big question to consider. But I'm going to toss out three ways that our credibility can be harmed. And then you can argue over lunch whether I mistook or missed, you know, missed something. You're welcome for that. That, you know, it's fun over lunch. The first way we lose credibility is when we portray the mission of the church, maybe officially, but also in our conversation, where we portray the mission of the church as anything other than Jesus and his kingdom. It's easy for us to lose sight of what is the true calling, the true core of the church which is to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus and to call people to follow him. That's the core of our mission. We can lose sight of that in many ways. We can begin to think of the mission of the churches just to make people comfortable or to provide a little help along your mostly okay life or to come in when there's a crisis and and be there for that, but really for the rest, not really. Or perhaps just to be a nice society of kind people. And you are kind people. But because we're starting another federal election season, I thought I'd talk about politics. (laughs) You know how much I love talking about politics. Our credibility as witnesses to Jesus is harmed when the world thinks the church represents a particular party position or platform or whatever. Our credibility as a church is harmed. When unchurched people, people who do not follow Jesus, think that a particular church, evangelical or whatever, is simply the mouthpiece for a certain position or a certain candidate or a certain party, then we have severed our community from our calling and our witness becomes incredible. Do you follow me? What we say about Jesus now gets heard through that political agenda because that political agenda has now set the tone for the gospel message. It dilutes and pollutes the true message that we bear witness to, that Jesus is our King and our Lord. Look at history. Read through history. Whenever the church 
pledges allegiance to Caesar, Caesar then sets the agenda for the church. Whenever the church pledges allegiance to Caesar, Caesar then sets the agenda for the church. But Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord of the church. Can I get a little more personal? Jesus, not Trudeau or Trump, as Canadians, because we seem fascinated with him. Jesus is the Lord of the church, not Sheer or Singh or May or Bernier. Jesus is the one that we as the church bear witness to, and we must never forget that. We are His witnesses. He claims us as His. He calls us as His. Now, I want to be really clear. Being a church that doesn't bow down to Caesar doesn't mean we don't speak prophetically into our culture and at times, of course, speak prophetically in political ways. It does mean that. But because we serve Jesus as the true and rightful King overall, we do speak up for justice, for mercy, for peace, for righteousness, for stewardship, for care. We speak up from our place as Jesus' witnesses, as His ambassadors. We speak up for those who are weak, for those who are overlooked. We speak up to support initiatives that lead to humans flourishing. And of course, among the church, there are different positions and philosophies about how we attain those goals, but we still speak up on those things. But we speak and we stand as Jesus' witnesses, not as party members, which means there will be times when we speak for, and there will be other times we speak against policies in the same party. Maybe the party you like to vote for. There will be times where we speak up and we say, they are right here and wrong here. We probably should be able to do that for every single party out there. Is that not correct? I think so. We serve a different king. Which means there will be times where we speak across the party lines because we never forget who we truly are. Witnesses to Jesus, not whips for a particular party. Now, does it mean you can't have political views as a Christian? Of course you can. We all do. We should. What happens in our political life has profound effects on our country, on real people's lives. So have your opinions. That's fine. Talk strategy. Get out. Vote. But in every conversation, in all that you say and do, remember who you are. Or maybe more accurately, remember whose you are. Don't forget that your allegiance is to Christ. Your allegiance is not to conservatism or liberalism or whatever ism you like. It's not even to Canada itself. Your allegiance is not to Canada. It's to Christ. I know some of you think, what? Aren't those, can't those, allegiance to Christ first, Canadian second, or third, or whatever, but it's not first. Jesus is first, which is why brothers and sisters across political and national and ethnic lines are more true, we have more true allegiance to them as the family of God than we do to those who ascribe to same political views or are part of the same nationality. The Church of Jesus is transnational. It's Global, it's multilingual, multicultural. Because we are followers of Jesus. So we never want to let anything cloud our witness to Jesus. And in these coming months, I challenge you, particularly those among us who have strong political views, to remember your allegiance. Don't forget it. The credibility of our witness depends on our unrelenting focus on Jesus and his kingdom first. 
Should I stop there? The second way we lose credibility is when we as a church forget that we exist for those outside the church. What I mean is this. Our witness to the world must actually reach the world. And yet it's so easy for us to think and act like the gathered church exists solely for its own membership. Like we, we is for us. We're a club. And we exist for the sake of our own members. No. The church does not exist for the sake of its own members. We are the church and we exist for the sake of the world. How does that affect our credibility? Well, if we forget who we exist for, then we keep the good news to ourselves, the good news about Jesus, the good news about his resurrection. We shield the light of the world from the world. And not only is this unloving, but it then renders the church irrelevant to anyone who doesn't know or hear. Irrelevant to outsiders. And this is why, stumbling forward as the Erickson Covenant Church, we want to be deliberate in our invitation, in our life, for the sake of of outsiders. We want to create opportunities for people who have never heard about Jesus to connect, to meet. Of course we do that in our conversations, in our witness as the church, in the community. But eventually, we want them to come to land in this gathering and find in this gathering a place where they can belong and discover and grow. And so that when outsiders, your unchurched friends, finally do show up after years of invitation, we want to make sure that they're not only welcomed by members of the Dream Team, thank you for those of you who serve in that team, but that every one of us sees someone we don't know and we extend our hands because we realize if you're a part of this church, guess what? You are hosts of this party. Look around. You're hosting your own party today. You are hosts of this party. You reach out. You welcome in. So if you've been here for more than a month or two, take off your jacket, roll up your sleeves, get to work, shake a hand, wash some dishes, get part of things. We want to be a church that gathers with outsiders in mind. And we do that also by making sure that what's happening is at least moderately understandable. You know, there's some cues as to what's happening. We're not just assuming that everybody knows what's going on. It's why when I'm speaking, I try to always remember that there's someone here today who has not read the Bible. That there's someone here today who feels like church is a pretty freaky business, but they got drugged here by someone or they heard the coffee was good or whatever, and they're trying it out. And I want to always be aware of that, particularly as I'm teaching, that I'm not assuming that you believe anything that I'm saying. And if you're here today and you think, this guy's got to stop talking soon... I don't believe anything he's saying. I want you to know how much I love and respect you, and I'm really glad you're here. But all that takes intention, takes focus. We gather as the church for the sake of those who don't yet know Jesus. We want people to find and follow him. Our credibility as a church depends on us remembering we exist for outsiders. Third, we lose credibility when our understanding of the good news of Jesus is shallow and childish. Now, I could go on and on about this point, but I'm not. The cold truth is this. Way too many Christians know way too little about their own Christian faith. Beyond a few basics about Jesus and a random Bible story here and there, most Christians flounder out of their depths at some of the simplest questions about their faith. And yet, if we're called to love God with all of our heart, mind, strength, then we've got to actually take up the business of growing in our understanding, not only of our own faith, but how our faith in Christ informs the rest of our lives. 
Now, let me ask you, if you were considered a primary witness at a criminal trial, imagine that. Maybe you were even the expert witness. And then you showed up. Someone's life is hanging in the balance, depending on what you say. But you show up totally unprepared. In fact, you don't even know what this case is about. Oh, you're asking me information that I learned years ago, but you know, I haven't opened that file for 15 years. I'm a little fuzzy on the details. First of all, how would the defendant feel right at that moment? Like committing the murder they were just being accused of, perhaps? If you were the primary witness in that case, you'd botch it up because you didn't take your role as a witness seriously. You didn't plan. You didn't prepare. You weren't ready. Yet every day, we as the church get up and go to work or school or engage with our kids or meet a friend and we've been called as Jesus' primary witnesses and yet often many of us don't have any commitment to learning more on a regular basis about our faith in Christ. We don't know much really about Jesus and why his life, death, death, resurrection, and ascension really matters. We aren't really sure what this kingdom of God or new creation come in Christ really means and how that makes a difference in our lives. We haven't really developed our Christian minds. In fact, we've allowed our minds to be more developed by Netflix or Fox News or CNN or anybody else, Uncle Jimmy, Aunt Joan. They have formed our minds, but not the gospel, not the Christian faith. And so if we want to be credible as witnesses, we have to address this lack of understanding. Christianity, you know, is not about being overly intellectual. It's not about having a big head. But it does mean loving God with all of our minds, as well as all of our hearts and soul and strength. And frankly, what's endangering our witness as a church to Christ, what's endangering that witness at this point in our history, is not a Christian faith that is too smart or too heady. That is not the danger out there, folks. The danger is that it's too anemic and thoughtless. So we, as a church, need to engage in a steady diet of learning and growth, starting from where you're at. Not expecting you to jump to some big monstrous volume with footnotes, but engaging a regular practice of learning and growth, specifically in the area of basic scripture, like actually reading the Bible, but basic theology, basic Christian apologetics, Taking something down off the shelf and beginning today. Because our credibility is hurt when we can't share with people not only how Jesus has given us purpose and changed our lives, and there's a very personal, real heart aspect to that, but also how our faith informs, and, and the Christian faith has so much resources to bring to the hard, difficult questions that people are asking today across the spectrum. Engages every area of our lives. So, Allow me to give you some starting suggestions. You knew that was coming. I want to suggest that you take down off the shelf or your Amazon cart or your local bookstore one of these three books. Do it this month. Mere Christianity, which I recommend all the time, and it's the only one who took me up on the free copy I'll give to anybody who comes and asks me, because I collect them for anybody who comes and asks me. Okay, next one, surprised by Hope, N.T. Wright. This one will blow your mind. I don't care where you are at in the faith journey, even if you don't believe in Jesus, it'll still blow your mind. But those of you who've walked with Jesus a little longer, you've got to read that book. It'll change everything for you. And then the third one, Andy Stanley's Irresistible, is a beautiful, new, encouraging reading that really is the old story, but also will really help you articulate your faith. If you want to know more about that book, I'd suggest you talk to Al and Annalie. <sighs> who knows? Maybe they'll have a free copy for you. Oh, no, I didn't say that out loud. 
Don't, don't expect a free copy from them. But those three, take one, like I mean it. Read one of those books. You can get them on audio too. And then the other one, for those of you who like podcasts or YouTube, I binge listen to Justin Brierley, incredibly thoughtful Christian. What he does in his podcast, Unbelievable, is mostly he gets atheists and Christians together to talk about something. It is the most respectful, amazing conversation. I've listened to years' worth of his podcasts. Um, he models incredible dialogue across wildly different perspectives. Social issues, political, theological. He also, a number of the conversations will be inter-Christian conversations, different issues of theology, but almost all of them are different points of view, and he moderates that. It is a great way to grow in your own understanding of your Christian faith, but also your ability to explain it and articulate it. And for those of you who drive or work in a place where you can listen to headphones, I encourage you to download and binge away. You'll grow through it. All this to say one thing. Jesus has called us to be his witnesses. That's our mission. And so we want to do everything to make sure that our witness is credible. So that Jesus' mission to see salvation come, freedom come, forgiveness come to every man, woman, and child will actually come true and come true through us. So, ready? Set? What? (laughs) Well, I've already given you a bunch of applications today, so I'm not going to add any to that unless you're thankful. I'm going to wrap it up. We want to be the kind of church that is ready for the witness that Jesus called us to. Will you stand? The worship team is going to come. Stand and pray with me. The worship team is going to come. We're going to close with the song, but let me just pray for us as a community. Or Jesus, you are the one who reigns in us. I ask that you would fall upon us by your Holy Spirit. That we would worship you. That we would pray as a community, asking you to do in us a mighty work. And that you, by your Holy Spirit, will lead us to address any credibility gaps that may exist in our own lives, in the life of our church, so that we can be your witnesses in this world. This is something you are going to fulfill in us. It's not something we create, but Lord, we want to be ready. And so we stand ready, ready for you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.